Good morning. My name is Jim Mullins, one of your pastors. It's good to be with you this morning. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be doing a little um, a mini-series where we're talking about some of the things that are really important to us in the life of the church, the idea that all of life is all for Jesus, word and spirit, family culture. And so uh, we're going to do that over the next few weeks. And today, we're going to focus on all of life is all for Jesus, this rallying cry that we have that sees that all of life matters to God. It's an opportunity to love God, to glorify him, to love our neighbors. And so we're going to dive into that today. Before we do, before we dive into Genesis, I want to tell you a story. A few, uh, about 10, 15 years ago, I had the privilege of being a basketball scout. Not a good one, but a basketball scout. And not just anywhere, but in Turkey. And when I was in Turkey, I met a man who gave me a crisis of faith by the way he played basketball. His name was Joe. This guy was average in almost every way, including his name. <laughs> if you saw him on the street, you would not think that this guy is a professional basketball player, but you would think at best, he's like an average pickleball player. <laughs> and this guy spent his entire life mastering the game of basketball all day, all afternoon, playing basketball with his brother. And he cultivated the game, mastered the game in such a way that he put delicate attention to detail into everything he did in a way that would rival the sketches of an architect or the scalpel of a surgeon. When you saw the ball roll off his fingers and hit the bottom of the net, it almost took on a musical quality with the way that he learned to shoot a basketball. Played a few years in the NBA, then ended up playing overseas where he ended up in Turkey, and I ended up meeting him and becoming friends with him. And one day I got to see him play a game, and I'll never forget this game. See, Joe played for this little team in this obscure town that was only known for one thing, producing frozen chicken nuggets. It was just a small little town and everyone came out to the games and they had somehow made the playoffs. They were playing the big team called Besiktas, this, this powerhouse of a team from Istanbul that was filled with all kinds of former NBA players and Joe and his team did not back down. It was an elimination game in the playoffs and Joe played a masterful game. He had skill and creativity. He scored the most points, but he did it in a way that got his whole team involved. You knew that this guy was the, was the player who loved the game the most. And as the clock began to tick down, the game was close. And there were seven seconds left. They were down by two points. His team had the ball, and every single person knew where the ball was going. It was going to Joe. So he inbounded the ball. He dribbled right. He got cornered by two giant Turkish guys, crossed over, goes left, 
three, two, one, fading away from like 40 feet out. Nothing but net. They win the game. The crowd rushes the floor. They lift him up and they're celebrating him. It's one of those like Disney moments. It's one of those moments when like Steve Urkel comes into the game and hits the winning shot. It's almost too good to be true. But Disney and Family Matters and all those things, what they don't show you is the morning after. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're sitting with Joe the morning after, and you're eating some Turkish pastry called borek, and you see he's got some little crumbs on his beard, and he's discouraged. And he looks over to you with the adrenaline drop from the night before, He says, why does this even matter? Why does basketball matter? Why should I play this game? I've I've become a new believer. I'm following Jesus. I love him. If I want to devote my life to something meaningful, shouldn't I just go be a pastor or a missionary or start a nonprofit or do something that helps people? But why does this game matter? Why does it matter to God? Why does basketball matter? Should I quit? Should I go do something else? What would you say to Joe? This morning's gonna be a little bit different. I'm gonna ask for some participation. I want you to actually turn to the people around you and, and imagine that you were sitting with Joe. What would you say to Joe in that moment, in this crisis of faith, when he says, why does basketball matter to God? Okay, take a minute or two and discuss amongst yourselves. All right, let's go ahead and bring it in. I imagine in this room that there were some pretty good answers. I didn't have those answers back then. Here's what I wish I would have said. See, I know that many of us ask those questions too. With the other 65,000 hours of your life that isn't doing church stuff, why does it matter? spreadsheets and brushing your teeth and and mowing the lawn. Why does that matter? How does that matter to God? There are so many answers that I could give, but what I want to do today is just focus on a few in Genesis 1 and 2 about why our work matters to God. Now, when I say work, I want to be very clear. I'm speaking of any human effort to sustain or, or cultivate some aspect of God's world. So it's not just employment, but we do work in the home, we do work in the community as we're volunteering, changing diapers, all of that is work if it is cultivating or sustaining some aspect of God's world. 
And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2 and see, are there some answers there for Job? See, usually when we look at the first chapters of Genesis, we tend to think that they are focused on questions about the age of the earth and those debates, but those aren't, it's not even answering those questions. It's not even talking about that. It's talking about something else. It's a rich and poetic description of the way that the world was intended to be and how it's structured in these relationships between God as the center of everything, humanity created in his image, and then the, the non-human creation and how those things are made to function and flourish together. Genesis 1 and 2 paints a different picture of work. It's a glorious encounter with God, who's a worker. An opportunity to reflect his image, an opportunity to serve others. It shows us a glimpse, not all of the answers, but a few of the answers about why work matters. So why does work matter? Number one, work matters because God is a worker. God is a worker. When you open up Genesis 1 and you see the first sentence in the Bible, first chapter, first sentence, whenever you start a story, however you start, you know it's going to be meaningful. And what does God say? Well, he doesn't say, in the beginning, God was relaxing in a hammock. <laughs> or in the beginning, God made humans because he was tired of doing all the work himself. So he got himself some minions to do some things. <laughs> Rather, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first thing we see about God is that God is a worker. He's a creator and he is a worker. And this doesn't maybe sound all that scandalous to us, but it would have been back then. See, this stands in contrast to the ancient creation accounts, the, the, the myths of the surrounding nations which often portrayed the gods as being against work, that work was below them, and that they created humans to be the servants of the gods to do the work that they didn't have to do. So the implication is that work is bad. You need to do whatever you can to get out of it. But, but Scripture, but Genesis 1 and 2, makes this scandalous, bold statement in portraying God as a worker in the beginning, God created. And over six days, he gets to work of making this masterpiece of a creation. Every aspect of this creation you've enjoyed from the way that waves work to oxygen, anyone a fan of oxygen? <laughs> Was all a part of his good work. Big fan over here, great. What kind of worker is God? As we see him creating in the beginning, we see that God is the great architect who perfectly designed the world with both function and beauty, balanced ecosystems with usable and renewable material. God is the great farmer before all farmers, whose original work is behind every morsel of food you've ever enjoyed as he creates and employs billions of microbes in the soil to create sweet blackberries and giant pumpkins. God is the great interior designer who created the full spectrum of colors and painted them, not in like a little sketchbook, but across the mountains and flowers 
and people. His sketchbook is the Arizona sky, the sunset, where he sovereignly displays the brilliance of the colors orange and purple. God didn't just choose the colors for an Arizona sunset, but it was his idea that they exist. Orange was his idea. How great is that? God is the great entrepreneur whose enterprise includes crazy innovations such as the oxygen that this guy appreciates. <laughs> Photosynthesis, the optic nerve that allows us to see the brilliance of creation, including the color orange. And then we see God, after he creates everything, as the great auditor and quality control manager who watches over every inch of creation and declares it is good. It is good. You see, God is glorious and majestic. He's holy and he's good. And he is those things as a worker. That is the foundation for why work matters. That we are created in the image of a working God. And that's what gives dignity to work. But not only is God a worker, he lets us join him. He lets us step into the process as well. So we jump forward to Genesis. Genesis 1.26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living thing that moves on the ground. See, the second thing that we see about work and why it matters is that good work reflects God. That humans were called into good work. So that when we do good work, it reflects something about God. When we are creative, it gives a hint of what God is like, that he's creative. When we act wisely, it gives a hint of the wisdom of God. When we provide for others, it gives a little glimpse of what provision is like and an echo of the God who provides. This passage here is often referred to by theologians called the cultural mandate. And it may just sound like God wants us to be zookeepers and take care of all the animals and stuff. But the language here is, is this royal language, as if God is the king and he has made us like, like his royalty, who's carrying out his work in the world, developing, cultivating the potential that he embedded in the world. And, he, and we do it with a unique identity. It says we are made in his image, in his likeness. Some of where this language of image and likeness comes from is when ancient kings used to go into a town and they would, they would kind of take over a new town, they would set up a statue of themselves. And the statue, when you looked at it, you could see something about what that king was like. And it wasn't the king himself, but it was a glimpse, an image in the likeness of the king. And so to be made in the image of God is to almost be like we are God's self-portraits. 
that he carves, that there's something about humans and the way that we're made that shows what God is like. And God makes these self-portraits and then scatters them around the world. An image isn't the, the, the thing, but it gives you a glimpse of what the thing is like. Let me illustrate this. Let's throw up a picture up here. Uh, all right. Here's a picture from a few years ago. That is not Warren and, that, and not Jim. That is a picture. But it can tell you something about Warren. It can tell you something about Jim. It can tell you a couple things. One is that there's a real friendship here, that two people really love each other. <laughs> Warren. Number two, that... This guy's probably from New York. There's a clue. Number three is that this guy has an unfounded confidence in the team that is on his shirt to win games. As we watched the, the Suns beat the Knicks that very night. So that's not Warren, but that picture can tell you something about Warren. A picture can tell you a lot. And we as made in, the God, in God's image, are like pictures, snapshots, portraits of God that show what he is like, and he scatters them across the world to give a glimpse of what he's like. And in your work, that's what you are doing. You're painting a picture of God. Where does God put his self-portraits? He puts his self-portraits in classrooms where teachers like Katie Mays, part of our church, kindergarten teacher who displays the wisdom and knowledge of God where she deeply understands the content matter that she's teaching and also each of the kids in her classroom. And when you see that wisdom and you see that knowledge, you get a glimpse of the wise God who's the source of all knowledge. You see her and the impact that she makes when she teaches these kids to read and every document, every book that they will have for the rest of their life will have been impacted, been impacted by her and her reflection of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Silas, probably know Silas. He's a woodworker as a hobby. But hobby is good work too, and it paints a portrait of God's restoration. He finds fallen trees after storms when he finds this Aleppo pine in someone's front yard and turns it into a well-crafted table where families can come, he is displaying the God of restoration who will one day restore all that's broken and bring us to the table to feast together. Jackie, who's just up here, I think she was the one on the left. It's hard to tell sometimes. Um, Jackie, our director of operations, paints a portrait of God's order. Through her well-ordered budgets, her well-designed spreadsheets, her well-written emails where she cultivates God's gift of language and makes things understandable, she turns hours of work into 15-minute tasks and displays the God of order through her good work. All of these people are snapshots, portraits of what God is like through their work. And you too, in your work, whether it's in the home or in the marketplace or out in the community, the way in which you work is saying something about God. Is what it is saying true about God? And finally, we move to 
beyond Genesis 1 into Genesis 2. We turn the page. And what we see is that good work is an act of love. See, in Genesis 2, we see that Adam is placed in the garden to work it and to keep it. That it is a part of the human identity, the human vocation to work, and God makes Adam his gardener to cultivate his world. But, but there's a problem. And we see this problem in Genesis 2.18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And what this is talking about is it's speaking about God creating Eve. Why does he do it? Because it's not good for humans to be alone. Over and over again, in, these, in the beginning chapters of Genesis, God declares his creation as what? Good. Over and over. And there's only one place where it says it's not good, and it's not good that Adam is alone. Because we have a relational God who created us to be relational creatures and, and, and made it. And when he made Adam and Eve, he's, he's laying the foundation for all human community. And this human community would be made an interdependent relationship with one another, to care for one another. God intentionally making us with gaps to where we are not self-sufficient and we need others to help us. It's the, the foundation of community. But you may be saying, well, what does this have to do with work? When I think about relationships and love and community, I think about barbecues or grabbing coffee with a friend or taking a meal over when someone's sick. Not about work. But this passage is coming in the context of work as well as family. Adam could not cultivate the garden alone. And so God sends what it says is a helper. The word is there here, a helper. Now, at first, that might sound kind of condescending, that word helper, because, you know, in the context of work, that's only when, like, kids are helping to make cookies, and you're like, you can be my helper. <laughs> All that means is you're going to be picking eggshells out of stuff, right? <laughs> but this is actually a potent and powerful word. God is called the helper. He's called the ezer in this. And, it's, and, and, and what it's showing is that Adam and Eve are reflecting God when they help one another, that their work was made for one another, that, that a relational God created us to be interdependent and that we don't flourish unless we are providing for one another and bringing our gifts to bear to care for other people. And you may be saying, wait a minute, who is it actually that cares for people and provides for people? I thought you said it was God that provides. Is it God or is it us? Martin Luther asked this question. And, and the way he asked it is he said, when we pray for our daily bread in the Lord's prayer, how does God answer that prayer? How does he answer that prayer? Does he make biscuits rain down from the sky every time you pray for it? Sourdough just soaring like a missile? No. God provides every morsel of food, but the way that God does it is by calling someone to be a farmer and someone to be a miller and someone to be a baker. 
And, and through the work of their hands, God delivers the bread. He delivers the, the, the roof over our heads that's not collapsing on us. The air conditioning that keeps us cold. You couldn't do that on your own. We're dependent upon one another. And therefore, the work that you do has an opportunity to be an instrument of providing for others as God's instrument of love to, to them. Let me, let me tell you about a moment where I experienced this. A few years ago, I went to visit a friend's uh, workshop where he manufactures um, anchor bolts. Among bolts, anchor bolts are my favorite. <laughs> show, show a picture of the anchor bolt. That's the one right there. It holds large things into the ground. Now, I never thought I'd really need an anchor bolt in my life. Um, but one day I was on a prayer walk. Sometimes I'll go on a prayer walk along this train track. I like to kind of get away from where there's people so I can kind of pray out loud. And I was walking along the train track. And then all of a sudden, I see a rock flying at my face. And I do some sort of like matrix move and it just flies <laughs> past me. And I look over and I see a guy in a full defensive stance, like he's about to, ready to grab another rock. And he's looking at me and I'm looking at him and we're both trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> and it calms down for a minute. He sees that I'm not a threat. But this guy, he was inebriated. He was probably homeless and he was actually sleeping. And you can just imagine, you're taking a nice little nap and some dude talking to himself, some big guy comes walking up on you. And so he pops up and throws the rock at me. I'm walking away, halfway impressed with my ability to dodge a rock. But then I remembered anchor bolts. Why was I able to dodge that rock? It's because there was a light pole, shining light down right on that spot. And if that light had not been there, that rock would have smashed my face, knocked out my teeth, given me a concussion, and God spared me from that brain-damaging concussion in that moment. And how did he do it? He didn't just snatch the rock out of the sky, but he called my friend, Jeff, to, to make a company that manufactures anchor bolts that go into the ground that hold up that light so that rock did not hit my face. We are instruments of God's protection and provision. And by doing good work, we can care and love for love others. God bandages the wounds and comforts those in pain through the work of Ginny and Brittany and Justin Lee in this community and their work in the medical world. He prevents our cavities through Marika's good work as a dental hygienist. He protects us from life-altering accidents on the road as Travis and Lance make sure our brakes are on our cars in a right way. The highest thing that God has called us to in the biblical story is love, to love him and to love others. But part of the way that we do that is through our work and that's why it matters. But it's not just our work. If you want to work in a way that honors and glorifies God, it is not about just mustering up the will and the grit to do it. But you draw love for others from God. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because God loved us first. God's love fuels our love. 
If we want to do good work for the glory of God and the good of others, we need to first encounter the work of Christ and what he has done for us. That is the well from which we draw. And fortunately, what we find is it's not just the Father who's a good worker, but it's Jesus himself. His first 30 years on earth were not wasted. He worked as a carpenter, and I bet you he made some good tables. But then in his three years of his ministry, what was he doing? He showed up as our teacher, who's the source of knowledge and who taught us who God is. He was our doctor who went around healing lepers and giving sight to the blind and healing our wounds with his wounds, replacing our heart that was dead with a living heart. He's the maintenance man who sustains the earth by his very word. The custodian who not only washes the grime off his disciples' feet, but cleanses us of our sin and removes the stain of guilt and shame. The social worker who facilitates our adoption into God's family. The attorney who advocates before the Father to declare us as children of, the God, of God and forgiven. The general contractor whose love constructed the cross that dealt with the ugly, broken sin that we bring and whose powerful resurrection is the foretaste of what he's going to do when this great contractor renews all that's broken when he returns. When we draw from that sense of God's love towards us, we can actually answer Joe, sitting at the breakfast table and say, why does work matter? So I'm going to ask you again, Turn to a few people around you. Imagine that you're sitting with Joe. Based on what we've talked about this morning, what would you say to Joe about why his work matters? Go ahead and I'll, I'll bring us back in just a moment. <laughs>